Well, today we come to Genesis chapter 49, so you can go ahead and open up your Bibles there. It's been a little over a year we've been going through Genesis, almost at the end of it. I'm really not going to go back and do a review of chapter 48, but um, we'll just go ahead and jump on into verse 1 here of chapter 49. It says, And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together, that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Gather together and hear, you sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. So here we see that Jacob is about to speak some prophetic words to his sons. He's going to utter some words to each one of his sons here from his deathbed, telling them what is actually going to become of them as it pertains to the future of their descendants. That's what we'll see take place here. The tribes of the people, that is, that will be born from his sons. You see, Jacob was the patriarch of the family of Israel, the spiritual leader of the family. Here in verse 2, we see that he calls himself both Jacob and Israel. We've been using that name interchangeably throughout. You know, as we've been studying about him, we've seen it go back and forth. But here he kind of speaks of himself as both Jacob and Israel. He was a man, of course, as we've seen, that has struggled through this life, just like many of us do, uh, you know, with ups and downs and good times and bad times and such. But he was a spiritual leader of his family. And that's what we see taking place here. A, a patriarchal family is a family where the father leads the home. Sadly, in our society today, this head of the household position intended by God to always be for the father, the man, but unfortunately it has been degraded in our society today. Now there are various reasons, I'm sure, as to why families are not led by fathers. you know, various things take place, and a lot of it has to do with just sin itself, this fallen world we live in. Due to fornication, sex outside of marriage, many young women become pregnant, and the male counterpart who got what he wanted simply moved on to get what he wanted somewhere else. But, you know, as a child is born from that type of relationship, um, at times the mother of that child turns to abortion. And then that fornication, the sin of fornication, leads to a greater sin of murder. But other times the mother does what's right and she bears the child. But the child, or the children in many cases, is then left without a patriarch, a father to lead them. No male leader in the home. And that's one reason we see the role of father has been degraded in our society today because of sexual sin. There is no patriarch, no leader in the home. In other homes in our society today, the father may be in the picture, but he has been nothing more than that guy they call dad, right? And he's wrapped up in his work. He's earning money, climbing the ladder of success, but he plays no role in influencing the souls of his children. He may, through the money that he earns, provide food and clothing and shelter uh, shelter and such, 
Um, he may even provide a vacation or two a year and things like that. But he offers no value when it comes to who that child is on the inside and how they turn out to be in later years. So these children grow up with no moral leadership and they end up hanging around with other children raised up by similar parents and they commit fornication and get involved in the world, drugs and alcohol and such, and they move on to be the same lost people that their parents were. And this trait just gets passed on and it keeps going over and over. And this this pattern, though, only comes to an end in a family when a patriarch steps up. And that's why I'm kind of pointing this out as to what we see Jacob doing here and what he was. When a patriarch steps up, when the male leader steps up in a home and begins to lead a house the way that God intends for him to lead it, uh, things change. That pattern gets halted, okay? And daughters today, of course, should not marry men that are not going to be spiritual leaders. It doesn't matter how much money they can earn or how much fun they are to be around. If they don't lead spiritually, lead in the Word of God, lead, lead you in prayer, take the role as a patriarch, then that marriage is not ordained by God in accordance with the Word of God. Sons, young men, should be trained up by a father to be godly leaders of their home, men of character, men of virtue, men of, val- of valor, right? The patriarchal home is the home that God has designed in the Word. That's what we see. And our society has fallen apart as a result of that not being the case in many ways. Jacob was a provider, we've seen. He was a hard worker. That's who he was as Jacob. But Israel was a spiritual leader. Again, one in the same person, but he, making sure to be all that God intended him to be. His 12 boys here are all gathered around him now. And Jacob, the provider, the man, is is going to speak to them. But they're also going to hear from Israel, the spiritual leader, the patriarch of the family, the one that's going to speak into their lives. So what does he say? He begins to speak prophetic words to his sons here in verse 3. And he speaks to Reuben first. He says, Reuben, you are my firstborn my might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Now, these words are are wonderful words right off the bat here to Reuben, the firstborn, the one that should have received the birthright blessing, as we have talked about in weeks past. He was that son that gave the man, Jacob, his might. At the birth of Reuben, Jacob would now need strength to raise this boy, to be a man. And Reuben, as the firstborn, was in a position of dignity and power. That's what it means because he was the firstborn. He was in that position of dignity and power. He should have one day went on to become the patriarch of this family upon the death of his father. But we saw that that wasn't the case. And verse 4 says, unstable as water, you shall not excel. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. So Israel here is bringing up the past sin of Reuben. He speaks directly to Reuben 
And it, but it's aired out right in front of the other 11 boys that are there. Reuben, we saw in Genesis chapter 5, committed sexual sin. He committed fornication with his father's wife, Bilhah. We studied that back in chapter 35. So the birthright blessing, blessing wasn't given to Reuben. Instead, instead it, it seemed to have gone to Joseph, as we studied last week, who was the firstborn of Jacob's wife, Rachel. Joseph, as we have seen, was a godly man, a good man, a, a man of moral character, a man who, when he was faced with sin, fled the scene and left and took off. So the birthright blessing ended up going to him and, and not to Reuben, who was the firstborn. Again, uh, Joseph was the firstborn of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Rachel. But as we have seen Israel, uh, again, as we see here, Israel bringing up the past sin of Reuben and this sin being held against him as it relates to the future of his descendants, we must keep in mind and we must teach our children that sin, even when repented of, has long-lasting effect. This is why as sinners, and we all have been sinners, we should remain humble in the sight of God and the sight of men as well, realizing that our sins of the past have hurt others as, as well. Right? Yes, it's true, without a doubt, that our sins have been washed away in the blood of Jesus Christ if we've come to Him but we don't get there without repentance and godly sorrow. 2 Corinthians 7.10 tells us that godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation. So let's just remember not to be arrogant or proud or unsympathetic when it comes to our forgiveness in Christ Jesus, because there may still, have be, there may still be others that struggle somehow with our sin that maybe affected them in some way. And the Lord calls us to be meek. And the Lord calls us to be humble and lowly in mind and not proud and arrogant and thinking we're above anyone else. But again, Reuben is an example to us here of how sin can make a long-lasting impact on the lives of others that come after us. And we'll, you'll see what I'm talking about as we go on. This is all prophetic what Jacob is speaking here. He's speaking into their lives as to what's going to become of of their children and their tribes that will move on from them. But then in verse 5, Israel will address two other children. He says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man. And in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. And fierce and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Now, as I often do, I want to try and keep us focused on the practical as we're going through the Bible this time. But there are actually several comments that we can make regarding verses 5 through 7 here. First of all, uh, here again we see Jacob on his deathbed. He's not holding back. He's not mincing any words, is he? Right? Stupid is stupid. Foolish is foolish. Evil is evil. And Jacob's just speaking the truth. And to, to many uh, young men and young women that have grown up in a society where speaking the truth 
hurts their feelings, you know. This is not what we see in the pages of Scripture. We see truth, right? And many, many kids are brought up today, you know, pampered in a, in a way, you know, treated delicately throughout all their upbringing. And when someone points out the truth of them from the Word of God, they're often offended and they get, you know, they run away from it, right? But Jacob here speaks the truth to his sons in their lives here. But you know, when your children behave poorly, they need to be told that they're behaving poorly and they need to be properly corrected and instructed in righteousness, disciplined in a biblical manner, trained up to be spiritual people, young women to be obedient to the word of God, young men that are obedient to the word of God. Israel here is not saying to Simeon and Levi, you know, he's on his deathbed. You might think it would be different, right? But he's not saying, ah, you guys are nice guys. You, you're hard workers. I love you boys so much. You're going to be okay. Do you need a few dollars? You know, he's not really treating them that way, huh? No, because they've been fools in their lifetime. They've done evil things. We saw in Genesis chapter 34 that they destroyed, that they killed by the sword all the men of the city of Shechem. They stole their cattle and they killed them. Right? Verse 6 refers to hamstringing an ox. In the King James Version, it, it doesn't say that. It says that they digged down a wall, if you read it there. But that's probably a better translation of it because in order to get into the city of Shechem, when they did what they did, they had to tear down the wall to enter into it. Um, again, I'll, I'll read it to you from Genesis chapter 34. It says that they took their sheep and their oxen and their asses and that which was in the city, and that which was in the field, and all their wealth, and all their little ones, and their wives took they captive, and spoiled even all that was in the house. This is what Simeon and Levi did, and this is what Jacob is pointing out to them, okay? So we're really not told there that they hamstrung an ox like the King James Version that I'm teaching from reads. It was more they digged down the wall. But the important point for you and me here this morning is that these boys acted a fool in their lives. And Israel, their father here as a spiritual leader, did not let them forget that fact. And their past sin would have future repercussions on their families as well. Why do I keep bringing up the fact that the past sins have repercussions and long-lasting effect? Well, because we need to be aware of that fact, and we need to train up our children in that fact, because then maybe they'll think twice about their decision-making. You know, sometimes when you're in the moment and where you are, and you're living where you are, and you just say, I'll just do this, or I'll just act this way right now. But sin always has repercussions. It always lasts. It always has long-lasting effects in some way, shape, or form. So to fathers today and to the someday-to-be fathers, discipline your children. Train them up to be spiritual leaders, right? Get their eyes on the Word of God. Take some time to train them to be men and women of God. Don't try to be their friend when they're young. They don't need a friend. They need a patriarch. They need a spiritual leader. And you know what? When they're old and you have trained them up in that way, you'll find that they make pretty good friends as well when they're old. Friends that you're not ashamed to be around. 
friends that didn't grow up to be full, sons and daughters that didn't grow up to be foolish. But you have to take the time to train up a child in the way that they should go. And again, this comes back to the father. Now, I know that next week is Father's Day, so this is not really a Father's Day message, but this is just where we landed in the Bible this week. So um, we'll address the the subject as we're here. But these 12 boys of Israel, um, is there anything nice to say about these kids? Well, verse 8, Judah You are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. Binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. So we see five verses there dedicated to Judah and to the prophecy of his future people. Judah is the only son of Jacob Thus far, where we have seen his repentance in the pages of Scripture. We saw his repentance when we studied chapter uh, 44, right? Judah did indeed change. He rose up from the prey, as Israel proclaims here. When Joseph, before revealing to his brothers who he was, if you remember, he was going to take his little brother Benjamin from them and keep them as a, keep Benjamin as a slave. But Judah stood up and he rose up in front of the family and he put his life on the line. And he said, no, take me instead. And he confessed his sin in doing that. And Israel, as he speaks to Judah here in the presence of his brothers, he is pro- proclaiming a leadership role in the family for Judah. Again, Reuben should have received this position as well. You see, the birthright blessing included a couple things. For one, it received a double portion of the inheritance, right? And we saw last week that that double portion went to Joseph and not to Reuben. Secondly, the birthright blessing included the position of leadership in the family After the death of the father, the firstborn would become the the next patriarch, as I mentioned earlier. But that that part of that position went to Judah. The family of Israel, soon to be the nation of Israel. Right now we see the birth of it all. We see just the start of it. We see this man named Israel. But from him and from his 12 sons would come the 12 tribes of Israel. And they would eventually go on to be a nation, right? But right now we're just seeing a family, right? But they would always have from that family a leader that would come from the tribe of Judah, that would come from this man, Judah. And this is what Israel slash Jacob is proclaiming here. But this prophecy of leadership that Israel speaks of here would take over 600 years before it was fulfilled. And that is when David 
would become king of Israel. For many years after David, there would be a king or at least a lawgiver from this tribe, from the tribe of Judah. From David all the way up to Herod, to the first Herod, there was someone from the tribe of Judah that ruled over Israel. This leadership position was taken away from Israel by Herod and the Romans. That's when it ceased. And there's much that we can study on this, and there's far deeper that you you can go on this than I'm going to go this morning. But when this leadership position was taken away from Israel, there wasn't a leader anymore from the tribe of Judah, it, it is said that all of the Jews freaked out at that time. Because Israel had prophesied, as we've seen here, he he prophesied from his deathbed that there would be a leader from the tribe of Judah until Shiloh had come, he said. And at that time, when Herod put an end and the Romans put an end to the leaders of Israel ruling like that, they thought, well, Shiloh hasn't come. This, something's wrong here. The word of God's not being fulfilled because the Jews thought that Shiloh hadn't come yet like Israel prophesied. You see, the word Shiloh in Hebrew is a word that means the one whose right it is. The one whose right it is. So the one whose right it is to rule, the ultimate one, he's to be the ruler. It's his right to lead. That would be Shiloh, okay? So in other words, the Jews knew that one day that someone would come from God who would have the right to rule them. And again, Herod and the Romans put an end to this. From David all the way through to Herod, there was a leader from the tribe of Judah, just as as Israel had spoke, but it was put to an end by them. So now they're like, what's going on? Shiloh hasn't come. Okay, so the word Shiloh always referred to the Messiah. And again, they had come to realize that there was no more leader from the tribe of Judah. And this freaked them out because it means that prophecy had failed. It means that the word of God has failed. But unbeknownst to them, Shiloh was already there. Shiloh was amongst them. He came as a baby born in a manger. He was already there. He was a a, a little boy walking their streets. His name was Yeshua, or we call him Jesus. He is the one to whom all people, not just Jewish people, but all people are to be obedient to, as Israel says there in verse 10. All people will be obedient to him to Shiloh, to Jesus, the Messiah that would come. In Revelation 5.5, Jesus is referred to as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. That's the tribe he came from. And it was actually 1,600 years after Israel prophesied over over his son Judah here that Jesus would come. The Jews of Jesus' day would first become aware of him when he was 12 years old. Like I said, he was a lad. He was walking in the streets of Jerusalem from time to time, and he was made known to them when he was 12 years old, when he was sitting in the temple 
and he was listening to the teachers and, and he was asking them questions and also giving them answers because it says in Luke 2.47 that they were astonished at this 12-year-old boy and his understanding and the answers that he was given. So Shiloh was amongst them. But they still didn't realize it, though, that Shiloh had come. And even upon his death on the cross, they didn't realize that Shiloh had come, nor at his resurrection. But one day they will realize it. They will one day look on him whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for what they have done to him. So there is much to learn in these five verses here dedicated to Judah. Again, you could go much deeper than than what I'm taking you here as it relates to Judah and this tribe and as it relates to, to Jesus. And I encourage you to study that topic deeper on your own. But Israel continues here to prophesy over his children. And in verse 13, he says, Zebulun shall dwell by the haven of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his border shall adjoin Sidon. Now, the people that would de- uh, descend from Zebulun, the tribe of Zebulun, these people would settle between the Mediterranean Sea and the Sea of Galilee, where it says there in verse 13 that they shall dwell by the haven of the sea. That can also be interpreted as looking toward the sea and being situated where they were they looked toward the the sea in every direction. Um, If you want to read a story, it's found in 1 Chronicles chapter 12. You can see where the people of the tribe of Zebulon were very faithful people. They were very faithful, actually, to King David, and they provided King David with 50,000 men for an army. They were excellent soldiers, and they were very skilled in weaponry. And you can, again, you can read that in First um, Chronicles chapter 12, some of what I'm telling you here. But then in verse 14, Israel speaks to another son and he says, Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between two burdens. He saw that rest was good and that the land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and became a band of slaves. Again, we see Israel The patriarch just speaking the truth over his children here. He's not mincing words. It's not all sugar-coated stuff. It's just what the facts are. And Issachar would be a very large tribe. You can go and read Numbers chapter 26. The reason that Numbers is called Numbers is because it numbers the people and it numbers the tribes, and it records a lot of that kind of stuff. And in Numbers chapter 26, you can read where Issachar was a very large tribe, okay? Uh, They were actually third in size amongst all the tribes of Israel. But he seems to be prophesying here, though, Jacob does, that they are a lazy people. In verse 15 there, he says, they saw that rest was good and that the land was pleasant. Kind of like, reminds me of like a modern day hippie, right? Doesn't want to work, just wants to go out and, oh yeah, dude, this is good out here, man. Let's just stay here, right? You know, but that's what happens when you become sluggish and you become docile, right? That you don't want to stand up and fight. You don't want to take care of your people. And then as a result, they were a band of slaves. They ended up as slaves. 
a group of people unwilling to stand up and protect their land, unwilling to work hard, will become a nation of slaves, right? Servants to other nations, right? And this too needs to be taught to our young people today, right? To our children. Everyone is looking for a handout today, a free lunch, free college, and free this and free that, right? That just makes, just makes a, a nation lazy and makes us a band of slaves. Today, many young people think they're entitled to something, but they're, they're going to end up one day being slaves to the government if they just keep getting handouts and handouts and handouts because they'll never learn how to do anything and they'll never be productive and our nation will never be great. Verse 16 says, Dan will, speaking of his next son, he says, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that its riders shall fall backward. Now, one of the greatest judges to ever come in Israel was a man named Samson. And Samson was of the tribe of Dan. He was a tribe of of Dan here. You can find that in Judges chapter 13. But also from from the tribe of Dan would come idolatry. They would be the ones to introduce idolatry into Israel. Right? But now Dan was also a geographical location. It was a place. And they would set up carved images in that land and worship the carved images. Later, it's recorded in 1 Kings chapter 12, King Jeroboam set up golden calves in Dan. That place would later become the center of idol worship. And that's what Jacob is speaking of in regards to here. You can find that in Amos chapter 8, that it was the center of idol worship. So there was some good and much bad to come from Dan. And this is what Israel is prophesying over them here. Then in verse 18, it's as if Jacob on his deathbed, and he's speaking all of this. And remember, he's dying. He's weak. He's speaking all of this, and he takes a quick break from speaking, and he says, I have waited for your salvation. Oh Lord, takes the the attention off of the boys and speaks to the Lord, gasping for his breath maybe as he's dying, right? He's given his last will and testament to his boys and he calls out to God for he longs for the salvation of the Lord. But then he gets right back to it in verse 19 and he speaks to his son Gad. He says, Gad, a troop, Gad, a troop shall tramp upon him, but he shall triumph at last. So the, the, trab, uh, the tribe of Gad also produced a strong group of fighting men. First Chronicles chapter 12, verse 14, records how they also supported King David with a lot of fighting men. Okay? But Jeremiah 49 records how for a period of time, foreign armies also oppressed the tribe of Gad. But in the end, they would triumph, as Israel prophesies there in verse 19. So all of these things that we see him prophesying will come true in the lives of his children, and they are recorded in the pages of Scripture. And we could be taking the time to have you go there and all that, but I really want to encourage you to study this deeper on your own. 
Then he moves on, verse 20, bread from Asher shall be rich and he shall yield royal dainties. Now there's not a whole lot recorded in the Bible in regards to the tribe of Asher, but Jacob says here that they would have rich tasting bread and royal dainties. Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 33 and verse 24 calls Asher blessed of the sons of Israel. He said, let Asher be favored by his brothers and let him dip his foot in oil. Jewish tradition records that the tribe of Asher was the one most blessed with male children. And it's women, it is said, that the women were so beautiful that the priests and the princess sought to marry women from the tribe of Asher. They also say that there was a great abundance of oil in the land that Asher possessed, right? And that the soil was so fertile that in times of scarcity, and especially in the um, sabbatical year, Asher provided Israel with all of their olive oil. So again, Moses said, let them dip their toe in oil. Let them dip their feet in oil in the book of Deuteronomy. Asher is a name that means happy and blessed. Verse 21, Naphtali is a deer let loose. He uses beautiful words. Now, we've got to take a moment here and I've got to show you something of great importance. I, I, I want to focus you here on Israel's prophecy where he says that Naphtali uses beautiful words, okay? Keep that in mind and mark this page now and turn to the New Testament book of Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. Again, as Israel spoke of his son, Naphtali, he said he uses beautiful words. Again, this is prophetic as to what will happen in the future regarding these boys. Down in verse 12, Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed in Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness, have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and the shadow of death, light has dawned. So now Jacob slash Israel back in Genesis 49 prophesied over his son Naphtali that from him would come beautiful words. And this is the very place where Jesus spoke beautiful words to the Gentiles. He spoke He spoke beautiful words in the region of Naphtali, as it says there. 
In verse 17, we see part of the beautiful words that Jesus spoke when it says, From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And you see, and in this region, he would go on, if we were to read on here, he would go on to choose his disciples from here. Those that would go out and preach beautiful words. They would preach the kingdom of God. And Jesus would go on, well, you could see in this chapter as well, and to preach these words and to, to heal many of their sickness. And the words of Jesus are the most beautiful words ever. And he would speak these words and he would choose his disciples that would go out and speak these words from this region of Neptali. So again, the prophecy of Jacob from his deathbed was far reaching as to what was going to happen. And as we turn back into Genesis 49, the powerful prophecies of this patriarchal father continue. And verse 22 says, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well. His branches run over the wall. The archers have bitterly, bitterly grieved him, shot at him and hated him. But his bow remained in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. How many times did we go and look at Joseph and see how, how his life paralleled with the shepherd, with Jesus Christ, right? Verse 25, by the God of your father, who will help you and by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb. The blessings of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who was separate from his brothers." So what you see there in that prophecy is pretty much everything that what, what Israel was doing there was just giving an account of the life of Joseph, the life that Joseph had lived, that we studied about. We've read the whole story of Joseph, and we've seen how God had blessed him, even when it looked like, how's this a blessing? How's this going to work out for any good? And every time, God worked it out for good in Joseph's life. All of his brothers were against him, but the mighty God was for him. This again reminds us of our Savior, Jesus, right? The hand of God made Joseph strong in times of trouble, as Israel says there. Joseph's trials made him stronger and made him more skilled and gave him more wisdom to where he became the wisest man in, in Egypt and saved the people from the famine and his own family as well. He, he became an expert in dealing with the trials of life. But you know how you become an expert in dealing with the trials of life? You have to go through the trials of life. And you have to keep your eyes focused on the Lord and you have to fight your way through it by faith and not by sight. Then you can become an expert. And then the God of all comfort, will comfort, who comforts you in all of your trials, will then use you to comfort others in their trials, and you become a person of wisdom, 
But how'd you get the wisdom? You got the wisdom through going through the trials, through the hard times. And that's what we saw in the life of Joseph, right? And when Israel speaks of himself there in verse 26, and he says that the blessings of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors, he too recognizes that he was blessed by God far more than even his ancestors, Abraham and Isaac and such, right? It's awesome here how Jacob refers to the Lord God in these verses that we read. He calls him the mighty God of Jacob. We see him call him the shepherd, the stone of Israel. And of course, Jesus was the stone that the builders rejected, wasn't he? But Israel also refers to the Lord God there as the God of your father, letting Joseph know that his God is the same God that his father had and his fathers before him had for that matter. There is one God and one God only, of course. And Jacob also refers to the Lord God as the Almighty there in those verses, which of course is how Jesus is referred to in Revelation 1.8. Jesus is called the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Make no mistake about it, the God of Abraham the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, the God of Israel, is the God, Jesus Christ, right? The hope and the light of the Gentiles as well. The one who became flesh and dwelt among us. But let's move on. In verse 27 here, Jacob has yet another son to prophesy over. The other son of Rachel, the wife that he loved. He says, Benjamin, verse 27, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil. Now the people of the tribe of Benjamin were a people that were known for fierceness. I'll give you some references here uh, to look up. In Judges chapter 3, you'll find that there was a, a brave and a fierce man named Ehud. In the book of 1 Samuel, you can read of a man named Saul. In the New Testament book of Acts, you can read of a man named Paul. And all of these men were descendants of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, they weren't always known for good because in Judges 19 and 20, you can read where they were a ravenous wolves. They were cruel people too. But again, the apostle Paul came from the tribe of Benjamin The king Saul came from that tribe. They were always people that were known for valor, for fierceness, for tenacity, like you see in the apostle Paul, right? But again, Jacob, Israel here is just speaking prophetic truths. There there is good and there is bad amongst all people groups, Jews and Gentiles alike. But what we read recorded here in the book of Genesis Chapter 49, again, is just what he's speaking over his sons, and it's all going to come to pass in the future. Then in verse 28 here tells us, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is what their father spoke to them. And he blessed them. And he blessed each one according to his own blessing. Then he charged them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. 
Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite as a possession for a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of Heth. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into his bed. If you remember when we first studied this, Joseph was coming. He sat up on the bed at that time. Then he gathered all of his sons to him. Now he's drawing his feet back up onto his bed. He's laying down again, and it says, and he breathed his last and was gathered to his people. So indeed, this was a last will and testament that we just went through from this man of Israel, a patriarch, right? Whom, though he had the good and the bad and the ugly events in his life, he died as Israel, the man of God. And he did not hesitate. He did not hesitate at all to speak truth to his children. He was a great example of a father. Again, next week is Father's Day, but you get the message a week early so that so you that are fathers here can contemplate and examine the kind of man you are and you that will one day be fathers here, you too can examine for yourself as to the type of man of God you are and how you're going to be as a father, right? A man of righteousness, a man of godliness, a man that seeks that out in your daily leading. Someone that will be a patriarch that will stand up and, and lead his family. A home without a patriarch is a weak home. And a society where the patriarch is degraded or he doesn't play a role in a family, that society eventually will go downhill as well. So as always, so much to learn from the pages of Scripture. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. God, thank you that you have not left us comfortless. You have not left us alone. You have given us your Holy Spirit who is our teacher, our comforter, our counselor. You have given us your written word Men of God spoke as your Holy Spirit led them, and this was all written down, Lord, that we might know it, that we might grow in the grace and in the knowledge of you, that we might have an understanding of your will and your purpose in our lives here on this earth. God, I pray for each one of us here as we have heard your word today, Lord, that we would not be forgetful hearers, Lord, but that we would be doers of your word. Lord, oftentimes it's easy to just gather week after week around your word and study your word and it can just become background noise and, and, and not actually something that impacts us and causes us to change, Lord. But you have given us your word for a reason, Lord, that we might, that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped, Lord. You desire that we would be thoroughly equipped, that we would live this life led not by the flesh, but by your spirit. So Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you 
that where two or more are gathered in your name, there you are in the midst. We thank you for your presence amongst us. We thank you for your presence within us. And we pray that as we go forth into another week, Lord, that you would come upon us and that we would shine as lights in this world. This world is full of darkness, Lord, and that darkness can influence us, Lord, if we do not fix our eyes on you, Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. So, Lord, we pray that by your Spirit you will lead us, Lord. But, Lord, it it starts with us yielding to you, surrendering to you absolutely, Lord, on a daily basis to take up our cross daily and follow you. So again, Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for your love and grace, your, your mercy in our lives that is new every morning. We just acknowledge you in our path as we go forward into a new week. In Jesus' name, amen.